Welcome, and thank you for joining us for the City Baptist Church podcast. This week's message is from our current teaching series, The Called, God at Work Through His People. In this series, we will follow the lives of Elijah and Elisha, ordinary men who were called to stand for the one true God in a pagan and godless society. We would love to have you join us for a service in person. You can find all the information you need on our website at citybaptist.church. 2 Kings chapter number 4 this morning. And uh, if it's your first time with us today, thanks for being here. And uh, I'm glad that you chose to worship with us this morning. Uh, I'm excited about what God has been teaching us in this series. And I'm looking forward to today's message. Now, uh, how many of you have uh, ever heard of a guy by the name of uh, Mark Zuckerberg? Anybody? I think I got a picture of him up here. This guy right here, anybody heard of him? Anyone? Okay. All right. So I'm not here to be his fanboy, just so you know. Uh, but Mark Zuckerberg, uh, I have just an interesting story kind of set us up this morning uh, for the message. Now, Mark Zuckerberg um, is the founder of Facebook, of course, and a very uh, wealthy guy and all of that. But he was in the news a few years ago because in the matter of two days, he himself personally made $3.8 billion in two days. Can you imagine that? In two days, $3.8 billion, with a B, billion dollars in that space. It's uh, they, they figured out that in 48 hours, he was making $80 million an hour, right? That's, that's a pretty good hourly wage, you know? Like, we're, scr- we're, we're struggling for that 50-cent boost, right? And he's making $80 million an hour. That's $21,000 a second over those two days is how much money he made. Now, it's interesting. The reason I tell you that is, uh, is because it's interesting. When he first founded Facebook uh, years and years ago, uh, when he was a 20-year-old, he had an offer to sell the company for $1 million when he was 20 years old, when it was just getting started, and someone offered him a $1 million. And his business partner at the time, interestingly enough, his business partner was like, let's sell. I'm sure he said, bro, because he was 20, you know? He said, bro, let's sell. Uh, man, a million, think about it, a million dollars when you're 20 years old. That's a, that's a big deal. And so he said, let's sell it. Let's, let, let's sell the company and we'll go on and do other things. Think of what we could do with a million dollars. But another person in his life came to him and said this. He said, Mark, he said, listen, you need not be thinking about a million dollars. You need to be thinking about a billion dollars is what he told them. You need, stop. Don't just, don't worry about that million dollars. Okay. He said, you need to be thinking about a billion dollars. Now it turns out he was right. Because today, Mark Zuckerberg, as of this week, was worth 60 point, uh, uh, what was he made? I had it written down here, and I lost it. He's worth, oh, $60.3 billion as a (laughs) 34-year-old. We can't even even fathom that kind of money, you know? (laughs) Yeah, that's the question. Is he happy? I don't know. We're not here to diagnose him today. I'm not his shrink. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he is. Maybe he isn't. Uh, I would assume that he's discovered that money doesn't buy you happiness and the next billion doesn't buy you happiness. I think we understand that today. But the point I, I want to get across today is that I really see a parallel from this story of Mark Zuckerberg and our series. You say, where's the parallel to the series? How, where, where are you seeing the connection here? Here's what I want you to understand. The parallel to me is that this whole series has been us looking at the stories of Elijah and Elisha who are ordinary men who God used in tremendous ways. And a big theme that we've seen throughout the message, and today a theme we're going to see, is that I, I want us to understand that God has far greater things for us than we could ever imagine. God has far greater things for you in your life personally than you could even fathom at this point in time. See, the problem is, is so many of us as Christians, we uh, we look at our lives and we so very quickly sell out to something that we think is good 
when the fact is God has something far better than us, far better for us. Does that make sense? Like he could have sold out for a million dollars and that seemed like a big deal. But his friend said, listen, don't be thinking about that million dollars. He said, you need to focus on the billion dollars. Now we're not talking about finances today. We're not talking about temporal things for this earth. What we're talking about is things that last for eternity things that actually make a difference in this world, things that only God could do through us, not because of our strength, not because of our intellect or or our finances or whatever it is, but because if we open ourselves to the Lord and ask God to use us in a unique way, he's gonna use us in a way and it's gonna be greater and better than you could ever think. And so don't sell out for where you're at right now is what I wanna get at this morning right away. Don't sell out and be content. I've said this before, but too many Christians live a a, a year of growth of their Christianity, and they just basically repeat that year all throughout their Christian life. And so where they were as a five-year-old Christian is where they are as a 15-year-old Christian because they've just sort of been repeating the same things over and over. And here's why, I believe. It's because we become content, and we're like, you know what, I'm good. I've kind of, you know, I've, I've overcome some addictions that I had and, you know, I'm not struggling with that sexual sin like I used to struggle with and, and, and uh, you know, I've kind of gotten some things in order in my life. I've even got my finances and family and things are good. And so they just say, hey, you know what, this is as good as it's going to get. I'm just going to stay right here. You know, I serve in church. Maybe I, I give or whatever it may be. And we say, man, I'm, I'm all good. I'm all good. But the thing is that God still has something greater for you. No matter who you are, no matter what stage of life you're in, God has something greater for us. And so don't sell out to just being okay with where you're at. Always be looking for God to use you in a greater way because God will use you. But it's going to take sacrifice, right? We've talked about that already in our series. It's going to take, I mean, one of the most hated words in all of the English language, patience, right? It's going to take patience. It's going to take being willing to sacrifice some things that maybe we desire in order to see God glorified and lifted up. And those things, you combine all of those things and you'll see God do things with your life, but it's gonna take you maybe being willing to put aside a few things and being willing to uh, sacrifice. And God does want to use us in a great way, but it takes us just getting prepared in our hearts. And so today, that's really what the message is about. I wanna take a story in the life of Elisha. Remember, we transitioned to him two weeks ago. We went from Elijah the prophet to Elisha. And yes, it's no coincidence as who they are. Those are their names. And so we went from Elijah to Elisha and now we begin to see God do some unique things through his life. So we're going to look at a story in 1 Kings, as I said, 2 Kings, right? 2 Kings, chapter number 4. And it might be familiar to some of you. For some of you, you've never heard this story before in your life. And you're going to be like, what is happening here? I'll explain. And uh, it's going to be a fun study together. So we're in 2 Kings, chapter number 4. And I want to share some thoughts uh, for us this morning on what it looks like to be the kind of person that God can use, that God can work through. Now, we preached the whole message on being a person God could use at the very beginning of over a month ago. This is going to tie in a few similar themes, but the whole idea here is how can God work through us, okay? How can God work through us? So point number one this morning, I'll give you the first point, and then we'll get into our passage. So point number one there in your notes, if you've got them there, uh, is this, you have to make room for God to work, now, this is a key, this is a key uh, point of the whole message right here. You have to make room in your life for God to work. All right, let's begin reading in 1 Kings chapter 4, and I'll begin reading in verse number 8. And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great 
woman. Now, that does not mean a big woman, okay? Just so you understand, all right? This is not talking about her weight, no commentary on her eating habits, all right? It says a great woman. <laughs> it is a, uh, the, the word there means a, uh, a, a, a influential woman, okay? Influential woman, all right? And so she was someone who had, yeah, she had wealth, she had influence, um, she was a, a great woman. And um, I'll, I'll do a little bit more uh, explanation here. The, the word is godal, is the, is the Hebrew word there. All right, so there was a great woman, and she constrained him to eat bread. So she said to Elisha, hey, come on in and eat with us. And so it was that as oft as he passed by, he turned in uh, hither to eat bread. And she said unto her husband, behold now, I perceive that this is an holy man of God, which passeth by us continually. Let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall, and let us set for him there a bed and a table and a stool and a candlestick, and it shall be when he cometh to us, that he shall turn in thither. Now, the story here is, is interesting. It just tells us a story, a day in the life of Elisha. And so this family was there, this great woman. We call her the Shunammite woman. And uh, Elisha, when he would pass by, she'd invite him in, and she would feed him. She'd take care of him. She knew that he was a prophet of God and, and that God was using him. And so she says to her husband, let's go ahead and let's build him a place in the wall. It more than likely was their family compound. Uh, we'll learn later on uh, they, had, they had fields and all sorts of uh, land and stuff. And so let's add in a little spot. Maybe they had a place there. Maybe they built onto it. But whatever they did, uh, she just said, let's build a spot for him that if he's traveling, he would have a place to sleep. He'd have a little table, he'd have a candle, he'd have, he'd have he'd be, some basic things so he could rest and relax and, and maybe prepare for whatever it was uh, that God was leading him to do. And so this great woman uh, who was influential, she comes up with this idea and tells her husband, hey, let's, let's do this thing. And so they do it. As far as we know, they did it. They built this space for him. We'll learn that here in a minante And uh, they provided a place for Elisha to come. Now here's what I want us to see. What they were doing here is they were making room for God to do something in their family. Now, now you say, oh, no, that's not what it is. They're just, uh, they're just building a place. They're just being nice people. And yes, they are being nice people. But here's what they did. They opened up a space for the prophet of God in their home. Now, remember, in those days in the Old Testament, the prophet of God, I mean, he carried with him the power of God. Did he not? We know from the earlier fact, Elisha, I mean, he asked for a double portion of the blessing that Elijah had. And so for them to say, hey, we want him in our home, we want him close to us, what they were doing is they were making room in their home for God to work in their lives. And this little seemingly insignificant thing of just saying, we want to take care of the prophet of God, it is sort of the link, uh, the lynch, not link pin, what, I don't know what, you know what I'm talking about, that pin that I'm trying to say, it's sort of the whole story revolves around this decision right here to say, we want to have the prophet of God. And so not because, just don't misunderstand me, not because it would then obligate God to do something for him, but what they did is they put themselves in the proximity of God's power. They made sure that uh, he was going to be close to them. And there is a great lesson here for us about making room in our lives for God to work. Not because you or I can force God to do anything, but all of us can put ourselves in a place. We can focus our hearts. We can focus our lives in preparation for God to do something in our lives. We can all do at least that much. I'll explain it to you this way. A couple of examples. So when I was a kid, 
Uh, my parents made sure uh, that I was in church every, every service, you know, every time it was open. You guys, some of you know, my dad's a pastor, and so you're like, well, you had to. Yes, I had to, um, but there was also no excuses. <laughs> like, I, I had to be extremely violently ill to not be in church. If I was sick, they would just put me in the office, and I was sitting there, and I, they'd crack a door so I could hear the service, you know, all of these kind of things. And so, uh, I, so I couldn't get away with it. Uh, I had to be there, and so they made sure that we memorized verses. And in our church, we had contests. I remember one time I memorized 25 verses, and I won a hockey stick. That was pretty awesome, you know? They would coerce us, do anything that we could to learn verses and all of these things. You say, well, well, they're just forcing kids to do stuff. And, uh, and did it make an impact in my life? To be honest with you, uh, I, I, I was a believer at, a, at an early age. And yes, I knew right from wrong, but I did go through a rebellious stage. But here's the thing. Even though I was in a rebellious stage in my life, I still had all of those things inside of me that my parents had prepared in my heart. And so when the time did come that God came into my life and was like, listen, I have a purpose for you. I have something for you to do. I was very easily able to jump right into the will of God after I was able to put aside those rebelliousness and move aside for those things. And all of those things kind of got activated in my life. I cannot tell you how many times verses I learned as a kid come to my mind right now as an adult. And so you see what I'm saying? They, they this is, now this is on my parents. They were preparing me for God to use me at some point. They didn't know the path that God had for me. They didn't know what God was going to do with my life. But they knew that if they prepared me for something, when God's spirit did begin to work, I'd be ready for it. I'll give you another example. You know, sometimes in church, I'll share with you how I've had an opportunity to witness to somebody, right? You know, and, 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 and let's just be a little bit honest here. I know, I know that often that people think that I, that every person I talk to, I get to share the gospel with. I think some of people think that, you know, like my pastor, every time he... Here's why. I share with you the good stories, right? <laughs> I share with you the good, it's like my Instagram feed. It's all good stuff, you know? And <laughs> I, share, I share the good things of life. Now, here's the thing I want you to know, though. For every one good conversation with somebody that I share the gospel with, there's 10 not-so-great conversations. There's, uh, there's five people, as soon as I say, hey, have you ever considered, you know, a relationship with God, that walk away from me. There's two people that tell me to shut up. <laughs> there's, uh, there's two people that, that ramble on about all sorts of things and I can't share the gospel with them at all. Here, here's the point I'm trying to make though. I would never have the one if I didn't put myself out there for the 10. You understand what I'm saying, right? Because I'm putting myself in a position to be used by God. If I never talk to anybody about the gospel, guess what? I have zero chances to share the gospel. But because I put myself out there for the 10, you maybe get the one opportunity that God leads to you to share the gospel with someone. And so my point is that I'm putting myself in a position for God to use me. Does that make sense? Are you guys getting what I'm trying to say? I'm making room in my life for God to work. Um, we cannot manipulate the presence of God, but we, we can make room for him to work. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of John how the spirit of God is like the wind, right? And you don't know, you know, we, we can't control the wind, but I'll tell you what, we sure know when it's blowing, right? And so as Christians, we need to be the kind of people who put our sails up. We don't know when the wind's gonna come, but at least our sails are up. So when that wind does come and God begins to work in your life, something happens in your life and God then can use you because you're prepared and you're ready. You've made room in your life for God to use you. Now, I don't know what it may be for you. I know it's different from all of us. For some of you, it may be something in your life like this woman that you could repurpose in your life for ministry. Like, I mean, they had a place. They had something that said, let's repurpose this. Let's make this a place for the profit. It could be something in your life that God's blessed you with or given you, and you're like, you know what? That could be used for ministry in some way. It could be that. For some of you, it could be that you just start investing and sacrificing your time into the ministry of the local church. By the way, God is doing something here. 
isn't he? And so if we're going to make room for him to work, then maybe we should involve ourselves in what he's already doing. And so getting involved in serving and maybe sacrificing our time and, and sacrificing the treasure that God has given to us to serve and be involved in a local church. For some of you, it might just be, it just, it might just be reading your Bible every day. I can't tell you how many times God has spoken to me just in my personal devotions. And he showed me and, and revealed to me his truth just for me being consistent. You're saying every, again, people think pastors every day, you know, like I spread out my Bible, you know. <laughs> Apparently I have like a, you know, I scroll it out and, and, and I sit there and, you know, and I'm just like so communing with God. Listen, it's work, isn't it? You got to study the word. And then there's those days where you open it up and the spirit of God just says, ooh, this is what you need right here. And it just pops off the page and slaps you around and tells you this is what you need to hear. And God speaks to you in such a clear way. It's such an amazing thing when it happens. But guess what? If I'm not reading my Bible, it's not going to happen. And so making room in our lives for God to work to us, uh, start witnessing consistently. We talked about that. Do things like go on a missions trip. When we have another church missions trip, we know we should take half the church with us. Because you know what happens on the mission field when you're there serving? God does something. Jonah, we experienced that in St. Lucia this year, didn't we? And we were there, and Andy was there, and others were there. And, and God just did something incredible because we put ourselves in a position. We made room in our lives for God to work for us. So many Christians today, I am afraid, have never seen God move because you haven't made room for him to work. You haven't made room in your life for him to do something with your life. Now, I can't tell you what that may be. I can maybe give you some ideas, and I just gave a few kind of general things. But all of us know where we can make room for God. Make room for him, and just be ready for that time. Be ready for him to come, and be, be ready for him to start working in your life. And so let's now continue in the story. So they made room there, and now we're going to be in verse uh, number 11. So, and it fell on a day that he came thither, and he turned into the chamber. Here's the passage where I don't have them all up here on the screen today. You have to follow along with me. Um, it says in verse 11, he turned into the chamber and lay there. Knowing him, he was always tired, so he probably stumbled in and fell down, <laughs> you know, lay, down, lay on the bed there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him. So he's there, he's in his place. He says, hey, call her in here to talk. And he sat unto her in verse 13, say now unto her, Behold, thou hast been careful for us with all this care. What is to be done for thee? So he says, you've, you've done so much for us. What, what can we do for you? This is great. Wouldst thou be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the host? And she answered, I dwell among mine own people. That's basically what he's saying is, do you want me to talk to somebody? You know, maybe we can do something for your business or, you know, I'll talk to the higher ups. Maybe they can hook you up with something. She says, you know what? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm content. Everything's good where I'm at right here. Verse 14. And he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi, this is his, his, uh, his companion, the guy who went with him everywhere. He answered, verily, she hath no child, and her husband is old. She doesn't have any children, and her husband is old. And he said, call her. And when he called her, she stood in the door. I love all the details in the Bible, don't you? You know, you kind of visualize it in your mind. And he said, this is cool, watch this. About this season... According to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. <laughs> that is cool. And she said, Nay, my Lord, thou man of God, do not lie unto thy handmaid. She says, No, no, hey, don't, don't, <laughs> don't tease me like that. That's what she's saying. Don't, don't, uh, don't tease me. I think to me, I can hear in her voice the desire, though, for a child. 
no, nah, don't, don't, don't tease me. My husband's super old. <laughs> you know, don't tease me with this. Verse 17, and the woman conceived. Woo! And the woman conceived and bare a son at that season that Elisha had said unto her, according to the time of life. Nine, it's 10 months, right? 10 months later, <laughs> she had a child and she embraced that child just like he said. Now this is, this is crazy, isn't it? You read this and you see this thing here and you can kind of understand a little bit about her situation. Remember I said before, she is a gadol, right? She's a great woman. She has influence and she has everything that you could possibly want, but there was still one thing that she didn't have and she couldn't do anything about it. And God, through his power, enabled her to bear a child at her age. I would assume she was older as well, but God revitalized their bodies in some way and thankfully didn't go into all the details, but she conceived a child. And, uh, and we see her here uh, 10 months later having, having a child, and it's a pretty big deal in those days, especially to have a son. I mean, that was huge. Your son was the one who would take care of you. Your son was the one who would inherit all that you had worked for and and sure enough, she had a son and she embraced that son. What an incredible thing that would have been. Man, what an awesome experience. I'm sure Elisha made sure to come by around that time and be like, I told you, you know, see what I said? And to be there and to experience all of that. I mean, it must have been just an incredible, incredible experience to see all of those things. And, and I got to tell you right now, this is where I'd love to stop the message, just to be honest. I'd love to stop the message right here and tell you this. If you'll make room for God to work, then the most incredible things will happen in your life. Let's pray right? <laughs> I'd love to do that, but that's actually not where the story ends. So we're going to keep reading here. Let's keep reading. By the way, this isn't that how we want it to be, right? That's how we want it to be. Like, oh, if I just make a little bit of room, God's going to just, pfft, it's going to be awesome, right? All these incredible things are going to happen. But there's also real life involved. To so look at verse number 18. And when the child was grown, so it would have been a, probably a teenager at this point, it fell on a day and went out to his father, to the reaper. So they're out in the field. And he said unto his father, my head, my head. And he said to a lad, carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees until noon. And then he died. That son that they had never thought even possible that they could ever have. Here we are just years later. They'd enjoyed some time with him. And just in a moment, he complains of a headache. They take him in, and within a few hours, he's, he's gone. What a, what a tragedy. What a tragedy. What a blow to that family. The son they'd always wanted, dying now at a young age. Just imagine, some of you have lost friends and lost family members very close to you, and you've lost maybe people that are young, uh, that are young and, you know, and it's just a tragedy, isn't it? It's so hard to go through those kind of things. It's hard to face it. And so she's struggling with this. She's going through this incredible tragedy, but the story now continues. I'm going to read verse 21 down to verse number 31. 21 down to verse number 31. Now, here, here, here's something I just, I'll just make a quick comment. What we're about to read here, to me, is just another proof that the Bible is completely true. I'll explain to you in just a moment, okay? People argue that. They say, ah, oh, you don't know. Listen, this is how I know the Bible's true. I'll tell you here in just a moment, okay? Verse number 21. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God. So she went and put him on Elisha's bed and shut the door upon him and went out. She called unto her husband and said, Send me, I pray thee, one of the young men and one of the asses that I may run to the man of God and come again. And he said, Wherefore wilt thou go to him to, uh, today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It shall be well. He says, Why would you go to her? New moon, Sabbath, those are some traditional things to go to the prophet. He says, Why, why would you need to go? She didn't really tell him what happened, actually. 
Verse 24, and then she saddled an ass and said to her servant, drive and go forward. Slack not thy riding for me, except I bid thee. She says, get after it, man, and don't slow down until I tell you, or if I, unless I tell you. So she went and came unto the man of God to Mount Carmel. And it came to pass when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to Gehazi, his servant, behold, yonder is that Shunammite. So he saw her coming. He knew from a distance who she was. That, again, is reference to her being a great woman, the fact that she probably had a nice chariot or a nice, you know, nice animals, right? He would have known. Verse 26, run now, I pray thee, to meet her and say unto her, is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? So Gehazi runs down, and she answered, it is well. Now, wait a minute. It's not well, is it? But she says, it is well. And when she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came near to thrust her away. So she came and like fell and grabbed his feet. And Gehazi like ran over to like body check her out of the way. Okay. And the man of God said, let her alone for her soul is vexed within her. And the Lord hath hid it from me and hath not told me. So he says, I don't know what's going on. God hasn't even revealed it to me. And then she said, did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, gird up thy loins and take my staff in thine hand and go thy way. If thou meet any man, salute him not. If any salute thee, answer him not again. So he says, go and do not stop for anything. Look what he says. And lay my staff upon the face of the child. And the, woman of the, uh, and the mother of the child said, as the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. She's talking to Elisha. And he arose and followed her. And Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff upon the face of the child, but there was, not, there was neither voice nor hearing. Wherefore he went again to meet him, Elisha, and told him, saying, the child is not awakened. The child is not awakened. Here's how we know the Bible is true. Would you make this up? <laughs> Here's how we know the Bible is true. Would you make this up? Interesting, in history, when people would write stories and myths and they would write about great leaders of the past, they always made them sound really great, don't they? But here we see the man of God, the hero, the one who God uses in so many different ways, and he tries three different ways here to heal the son, and he doesn't, he can't do it. At first, he didn't even know that it was revealed to him. Then he sends his assistant, you know, and he says, I'm giving you the power. I want you to go down there and take care of this. And he gets down there, and he's still not alive. Nothing happens. And so he says, I want you to put his staff on his face, which is okay. <laughs> put your staff on his face. Don't hit him. Just put it on there, you know, and nothing happens. And, uh, and, and all of these things, I don't know if he said, okay, take my mantle, hit him with the mantle, you know, I don't know what was going on here. But the point is, is that he tries all of these things that he thinks will work, and they don't work. And to be honest, Elisha at this point is looking a little bit like a fool. He's looking like he has lost it, you know. <laughs> I, he has no, I'm sure he was frustrated. He says, I don't even know what's going on here. The details are not flattering to Elisha. And the reason is, is that Scripture is trying to show us something. When myths are written, they put the focus on how great the characters are. But in the Bible, it's not about the man. The focus is on the work of God through the man. And here's what's happening. He, Elisha says, oh, go and do this. Put your rod, you know, I'm sure he'll be fine. But nothing happens, okay? And that's showing to us that this is a true story because no person writing about their hero, Elisha, would ever include those details. But it's the word of God because it's not about man, it's about God. It's about him being exalted. And God's not going to get exalted if man is the one getting the glory for everything. Look at verse number 32. Verse number 32. And when Elisha was come into the house, behold, the child was dead and laid upon his bed. He went in, therefore, and shut the door upon them twain, upon the two of them, and prayed unto the Lord. 
I wonder what he prayed to the Lord. So many times in scripture it says, and he prayed unto the Lord, or they prayed, or she prayed. I was wondering what that is. I don't know what he prayed. I'm sure he was like, Lord, you got to help me out here. <laughs> they built me this place. <laughs> you know, Lord, you got to come through for me. And then this is, this gets a little weird in verse 34. Okay, verse 34. It's interesting. We'll talk about this in a minute, okay? And he went up and lay upon the child. He's a teenager, unless you're thinking, you know, he's a little kid, okay? Even older, all right? And he put his mouth upon his mouth, and his eyes upon his eyes, and his hands upon his hands. And he stretched himself upon the child, and the flesh of the child waxed warm. Then he returned and walked in the house to and fro, and went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times. And the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he called her, and when she was come in unto him, he said, Take up thy son. And she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and took up her son and went out. What? <laughs> what a crazy story. <laughs> I mean, he sneezed seven times. Did you guys see that? I looked everywhere for symbolism. There's none, all right? It's just, this is what happened, you know? Some of you sneeze seven times every morning or 10 times or whatever it is. I don't know. What a funny detail, though, that's put there in Scripture that he sneezed seven times. There's no great symbolism there. But it's what happened, and so they wrote it in. They put it in. And uh, what an interesting thing that God used Elisha to bring this boy back to life. Okay, I want to give you a couple more points from this passage, and we'll cover some more of this story here, especially that passage we just read. Point number two today, God's work is found in our weaknesses, God's work is always found in our weaknesses. This is what we see. Now, we saw earlier this woman. She was a great woman. She, was, uh, she had everything you could ever want or need, and yet this miracle takes place in the only aspect of her life that was not great. It takes place in the part of her life that was poor and needy, in the one part of her life that she had absolutely no control over. She had so much wealth. She had so many things, but yet God did a great work in that moment of weakness. Now, isn't it interesting to you? I know it's interesting to me how often the Bible speaks harshly about richness in the Bible. Have you noticed that? So many times the Bible speaks harshly. I'll share a couple of verses with you. In uh, Luke 1, verse 53, it says, He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent away, sent empty away. He also said in Mark 10, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, when you see this and you, and you hear these things, you say, is God against people with wealth? Is God, you know, into class warfare or something like that? Of course not. But what he's trying to get across to us, and we see this parallel here in this passage, is that in, when it comes to earthly wealth and earthly riches, oftentimes the person who has those things deceive themselves into thinking that they are self-sufficient, that they do not need God in their lives. Remember Adam and Eve, that was one of the aspects of their sin is that they decided to be independent of God, that they did not need him anymore. And wealth and riches does to the heart of mankind uh, such a thing that lures us into believing that we do not need to depend on God because that we feel like we do not have a big need of him, therefore we do not have to obey him since we don't really need him. Now I'm going somewhere with this, so stay with me, okay? For example, people who are wealthy in this world's goods people who don't have great financial needs, except maybe the debt that they put themselves in, right? Um, those kind of people, we pursue after our wants. And so because we don't necessarily need anything, 
we become very self-reliant. By the way, compared to the rest of the world, we are very wealthy people, extremely wealthy people. I doubt that there's a single person in here who would say, I have a legitimate, I mean, I have a, a legitimate pressing need that's affecting whether or not I'll be able to eat today, right? I mean, very, very, very rare circumstances that that take place. We are very wealthy people. And so compared to the rest of the world, if you've ever traveled to third world countries, you understand that. But listen, so many of us, we have so much in life, so much in life, that the temptation is to not be reliant upon God because we can actually see the future playing out. We can see the things that we've planned for. We can see the decisions that we've made. And so because of that, the temptation is, is that we don't typically follow after God then because we're reliant on ourselves. I'll take a little bit further. There's also many people who are very rich in their talents, aren't there? And you've been blessed from God and you have many different abilities that God has given to you and things that he's blessed you with. But a lot of times people do not trust in God then because their talent can get them pretty far in life and they can succeed and they can do well. There's other people who are very rich in good works. By the way, this really connects into Christians here. There's a lot of people who are very rich in good works. They've done a lot of good things. Uh, and so because you have done good things in your life and you've lived a peaceful life, we often don't rely on the mercy of God. And so we try to negotiate with God because of the works that we, that we have done. And we say, well, God, I've done all these things for you. Therefore, God, you should do some things for me. Now, I'm building a case here for what, what I want to get across. Write this down. Richness almost always leads to feelings of independence. When there's wealth, when there's things going on, uh, when, when, when things seem to be okay on the outside, when we're blessed with talents and good works, we then become independent of God. But here, here's what I'm trying to get at. Any feelings of wealth, any feelings of richness, even in these three areas I've just talked about, they're just an illusion to us as humans. They're just an illusion. And here's, here's why. Do you really think that you are wealthy enough in this world's riches to face the future without God? Think about that for a minute. Now, if you're like me, I worry about the future. Anybody else? Okay, well, I'll put, I'll put my hand up. We do, right? And so we plan and we prepare and we save and we do all of these things. But all of us, I think, recognize today that in a moment that can be taken from us. In a moment. And so we trust in these things that are so temporal, but in a moment they can be taken away from us. Do you really feel that you are rich enough in good works to stand before God and say, look at all of the good that I've done, God. Let me in. <laughs> Do you really think that you have enough good works? Of course not. Scripture is very, very clear about that. Isaiah tells us, but we are all as an unclean thing, right? And all of our, uh, all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. That's a very specific statement talking about people in those days who had leprosy, who would wrap their bodies in rags and the pus and the blood from the leprous, leprosy would get in into it. And of course it was contagious. And I mean, you see what I'm trying to get at? It's, it's nothing. So our righteousness to God is, is, I mean, abhorrible. You would never get close to it. You never want to touch it. And the righteousness that we build our lives on, we're like, I have done all of these good things. I have done all these things for the Lord. Listen, if you're trusting in that today, it is, it's nothing. In Revelation, it says that uh, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not. He says, you have all these things. You say you need nothing, but you don't know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He, here's what I'm trying to say. I'm not against wealth and all of those kind of things. But we in our humanity, we feel like we can accomplish things without the power of God. But nothing that we possess, nothing that we gain here in this earth um, 
can really allow us to have uh, uh, things together. Because here's what happens. When you think you've got it figured out and you think things are going well, God allows something into your life that you can't overcome. And that's what happened with this woman. She had everything, I mean, she had it all. But there was this one area of her life that she could not deal with. And this is where God decided to show up was in her weakness. Man. And for us, we, we, we so often have things figured out and then something just comes into your life that you're not expecting. A moment of weakness, a time of weakness, a season of weakness. It could be an addiction. It could be a health crisis. It could be a relationship that breaks down that you never saw coming. It could be a financial problem. But here's the thing I want you to get this morning. Those weaknesses, those failures, if you want to call them that, that is God's mercy in your life. It's God's mercy in your life. Because it is God trying to break us of our self-dependence. And then when we are broken of our self-dependence, we will trust him. And then he can actually begin to work in our lives. Remember, this is all about God working, right? So you understand what I'm building here. I build a case for all these things that we trust in. But God doesn't work in those things, does he? God doesn't work in those things. He works in our lives and he works in, in us in those times of weakness. Because for me, definitely, it's in those times of weakness. It is in those times of, of hitting rock bottom, if you want to call it that. And that's different for everybody, by the way. Hitting rock bottom where God really begins to work in your life and in your circumstances. That's where he really begins to work. And that's what we're seeing here with this woman. She had everything, but in the one thing that she desired, that it seemed like God gave her and then was taken from her, now God does something incredible in her life in this moment of weakness. Because you're not trying to live independent of God anymore. We saw it with Elijah. You see it with Moses, Joseph, David, Esther, Peter, all of those things. And many of you maybe right now are experiencing it in your life. To be honest, you guys know a little bit what's going on in our lives. We're in a moment of weakness as a family right now, a struggle. And, and God is teaching us so much right now in this time of weakness, of insecurity, of not knowing what's going on. And God is teaching me more, I feel, in the last week than he has in maybe a long time. Do you know why? Because it's that moment, of that, it's that weakness that's pushing me to him. You know, that woman... She was very specific, wasn't she? I, get there as fast as you can. Get to the prophet of God. I'm not leaving you. Grabbing his feet. I'm, I want to be where God is. That's a representation. Elisha is the prophet of God. And listen, when we have those times in our life that are weaknesses and, and difficulty, we need to cling to God. We need to turn to God in those weakest times. And then you will see God really begin to work because God works through our weaknesses. I mentioned it, I think, back in the first message of our series, but we don't often like to promote our weaknesses, but we know what they are. And so I'd ask you right now, in the moment of, in the weaknesses in your life, are you turning to God in those weaknesses? Or are you trying to cover them up with all of the good things of life, you know? And uh, so many times we do that, right? Man, uh, sometimes the people who talk about all the good and all the good works, they have some great, great struggles and great weaknesses. We try to cover them up. Listen, would you just trust God with those things? God's work is found in our weaknesses, God shows us so much as we go through these time, uh, those, those difficult times. The third point I want to point out from this passage today, and these are just sort of some observations that I, that I get out of the passage here, is that God's work cannot be manipulated. His work can only be trusted. <laughs> His work cannot be manipulated. 
only trusted. This whole story here is not to give us a formula of how to get a miracle out of God. Okay, so don't go home and be like, all right, I know what I need to do, you know, <laughs> and you know, I do this. By the way, that's what, re- re- that's what religion is, isn't it? Religion is if I do this, then God will do this, right? If I say this amount of prayers, if I, if I you know, give this amount of money, if I do this thing, then somehow God's going to, you know, bless me. That's religion, okay? We're not religious. We're about a relationship, right? It's about Jesus Christ actually communicating with God. We have a relationship with him. And so this is not a formula, this is not an A or B, you know, or, or God, I've done a lot of good things in my life, I'm a good person, so God, you owe me a good marriage, God, you owe me a peaceful existence, God, you owe me financial prosperity, you fill in the blank, okay? True faith is not faith in a formula, it's faith in a person. That's what true faith is. And God's work cannot be manipulated. All we can do with the work of God is simply trust his work and trust that he knows what is best for us. He is God. He is in control. He's still God, as we talked about, and we sang in that song today. And God knows you better than you know yourself, and he can be trusted today. In Psalm, it tells us, uh, Psalm 40, verse 4, Blessed is the man that maketh the Lord his trust, and respecteth not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. It's talking about having a singular focus on God. And simply what we need to do today is simply trust God no matter what it is that we're facing through. Think about it this way. Um, (laughs) What if God was like how you want him to be? I don't know if that's proper English, but you understand what I mean, right? What if God was actually like you imagine him to be or how you want him to be? Now just think about your life for a minute. Now I I can't relate to your life. I can only relate to my life, right? But... um, how many things have you desired and maybe even prayed for in your life that you didn't get? And looking back, you're like, oh man, I'm glad God didn't answer that prayer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a little transparent here, but y- you know how many girls I asked, I wanted to love me <laughs> growing up? <laughs> I might have even prayed for some of them. I just, I don't know, maybe, but thankfully God knew what was best for me, right? Thankfully he didn't answer that prayer, Okay. Because, man, she's a mess. No, I'm, I'm joking. No. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying, though, right? Things that we so strongly desire. And we're like, my life would be complete if this thing happened, right? And so, and so we, want these, we want these things to happen to us. I'm so glad that God overruled. Because <laughs> remember, at the baseline, we're sinful, fallen people. We don't, uh, we're foolish. And I think sometimes, it kind of hit me this week, sometimes we need to thank God for unanswered prayers. This is where the trust comes in. We need to thank God for unanswered prayers because he knows us better. <laughs> he knows what we need. And we must be aware that God knows us and we can trust in his care. God is not, uh, you know, a vending machine <laughs> that we put in uh, the right change and we get what we choose, right? That's not how it works. He knows us best. And sometimes we need to thank God for un- unanswered prayers. Now, this woman here, I, I want to point out something to you. She's trusting God in this whole situation. You say, how do you know that? How do you know she's trusting God? Look at verse number 26 again. He's speaking here to Gehazi, and Gehazi says, is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? She answered, it is well. I said, what? (laughs) A minute ago when we read that. But think, what do you mean, it is, no. Things aren't well, are they? Her son is dead, right? The reason she says it is well is because she's trusting God at that exact moment. She's trusting him. It's not well in her world, but it is well with her soul. It's not well with uh, the situation. Her son is not well, 
But you know what? She's trusting God, and so she can say, it is well. You guys know the story of Horatio Spafford who wrote the song, It Is Well. Many believe based off of this passage right here. And his story is such one of tragedy. His family, he sent his family on ahead, his wife and four daughters, and there was a shipwreck, and he lost his four daughters. And the story is that as he, his wife survived, but he and his wife, as they returned, they were headed to actually to Israel, and as their ship sailed over the spot where the last shipwreck took place, the captain said to him, this is where it happened. And he went down beneath in the ship, and he wrote the words to the song, it is well, as they sailed over the spot where his four daughters were lost. And, and, he, and he wrote such powerful words that we've sung many times here in church. Was all well in his world? No but it was well with his soul. Why? Because he was trusting in God. If you read on with his story, it's, it's amazing. To this day, still in Jerusalem, interesting, there is a Spafford Hospital for Children. And they help children, and it was one of the things that he founded after that whole situation. There's, there's a, some really cool stuff that God used him for in some unique ways. And obviously, he used those, that moment of him writing that song that encourages our hearts to this day. But he was able to say, it is well. Why? Because he trusted God. God, I got to tell you right now, can you trust God with what you're facing right now? Can you trust him with those weaknesses, with those unexpected things that are happening? Maybe that thing that you've been working through and struggling with for a long time, are you still trusting him with that? Trusting in God. His work cannot be manipulated. We can only trust it and know and, and, and trust in him. Well, lastly this morning, I want to hit this just briefly. God's greatest work is seen in salvation. God's greatest work is seen in salvation. I want to show you here a very interesting picture that we see in this passage. I'm going to go back to verse number 32 again. It says, and it tells us the story of Elisha. He came to the house and the child was dead, right? And he went in there, he closed the door and uh, he prayed and God obviously gave him something to do. And so he went and it says that he lay upon the, the, the child, the young man. He put his mouth in his mouth, his eyes in his eyes, his hands on his hands. Uh, that's how we know he wasn't doing CPR. So if you think he was like trying to, you know, fake it somehow, okay, he can't do CPR like this, all right? And uh, he stretched himself on the child, the Bible says, and the, and the child became warm. And then in verse 35, he returned, he walked in the house, he went back up, he stretched himself on the child again. The child sneezed. I'm assuming if he was laying on him, he sneezed right in his face, you know, and uh, he sneezed seven times. I'm sure he, he was able to move after the first one. And the child opened his eyes Hey, it's right there in the Bible, okay? Okay, it's not. <laughs> uh, and he sees, and the child opened his eyes, and, and he became alive. This is an incredible story, right? Okay, incredible. I mean, it's just, we don't understand. There's so many things in the Bible we're like, why did it go down like that? But it just, it just did. This is, what, this is what we see. But here's what I want you to see. In this story, which, by the way, is a little bit of a reflection of Elijah and uh, the widow of Zarephath's son, remember, who passed away. The first person raised from the dead was with Elijah. The second was here with Elisha. But the Bible so clearly illustrates for us how he was stretched out over this child's hands on his hands, face, completely covering him. Now, to us, this seems strange, but I see in here a great symbol, uh, some, some great symbolization of, of salvation. Here, here's what I see. Imagine, imagine you're in the room. Just for a moment. Just, help, just stay with me. Imagine you're there in the room, right? But imagine you're up in the rafters of the room looking down at this whole situation. If you were to look down, right, and you're up there in a weird way, you're sitting on the rafters, okay, and you're looking down at this and you look down and you saw Elisha, do you know what you'd see? Elisha. You wouldn't see that child at all. Because he completely laid out, he completely covered him in that way. Now this is a picture right here of what God sees when he looks at us. Okay, now stay with me. 
to those that have turned to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, when God looks at us, the Bible tells us he does not see us and our sin. He sees his son, Jesus Christ. He sees us covering him. He see, or he sees his son covering. He sees his son who took upon himself our sin and took upon himself uh, our shame. In 1 Corinthians, it tells us, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he completely covers us. And uh, when God looks down, he only sees his son and the sacrifice he made. In Romans, it tells us, for when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth, that's demonstrated, his love toward us. How did he demonstrate it? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Verse 10 talks about how we were at once enemies, but now we can be reconciled to God. The great principle here is that uh, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, the personal contact that we had with Jesus Christ is what brought us life because Jesus Christ is life. And so as, as Elisha there stretched himself over that boy and he, life came to him in the same way, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And when we enter into that relationship with Jesus Christ, that life is breathed into us and that, that, that old soul, right, that wicked, sinful soul is made righteous before God. And now when God looks at us, he doesn't see us, our old sinful soul. He sees Jesus Christ. He sees us. And he looks down and that's all he sees. Man, God loves us so much. He loves us so much that he was willing to make a way of salvation for us. If that's the case, don't you think he can be trusted, right? Don't you think he can be trusted? If he loved you that much, don't you think he can be, you can, he can be trusted in the weaknesses you're in right now? Don't you think he can be trusted in the, in the struggles that you're going through? If God can defeat death, the ultimate problem, <laughs> don't you think he can help you and walk with you through the struggles that you're facing right now? If he defeated death in this story here, don't you think that the word that he gave to us might just possibly have the answers for what we're facing in this life? This guidebook to life, don't you think that maybe it's there? I, I certainly do believe it. Here's the thing. When you see and when you understand, and we saw this in our scripture reading earlier as well, when you see and you understand that God cannot be defeated, you'll become more confident than ever in what you believe God has called you to do. We hope today's message was a help to your relationship with God. To stay connected with us, you can like us on Facebook or give us a follow on Instagram at Van City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will uniquely bless and grow you as you pursue His will for you.